Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 407, Robbing the Hood. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jeffrey, Susan, and David for signing up already. I feel for the English commoners in the late 1060s. I mean, they had nothing to do with the arrival of the Normans. Everything that they suffered was the result of the actions of the nobility, exclusively. Now, you might disagree on which member of the nobility was responsible, depending on which account you believe. But the fact remains that the commoners never had a say in any of it. But they were still the people who suffered the worst consequences of the nobility's actions and inactions. Common people were suffering even before the first Norman ship reached English shores. Families had been fractured for months at a time just so that Harold could prepare a defense against William. Fathers weren't able to raise their children. Sons couldn't tend to their aging parents. Villages shouldered twice the work just to try and stay fed and sheltered throughout the year without some of their most able-bodied members. And then, once the Normans landed, it all got so much worse. But despite all that suffering, the average Englishman appears to have been willing and able to resist the encroaching Norman invasion at every turn. They mustered time and time again. And even after the English nobility made poor decision after poor decision, until finally losing it all, the crown, the capital, the throne, even then, the English commoners still put up a fight. And yet, every time they did, their heroic bravery in the face of brutal occupation was being hampered by their own aristocracy. Many of the same people who got them into this mess in the first place. And after two long years of brutality at the hands of their new Norman masters, as well as betrayals at the hands of their former English masters, well, after all that, the southern common folk saw the Godwinsons return to England, only to then begin raiding the English coast alongside some of their new Irish friends. The Godwinsons should have been the rallying point for the South. They should have been the hope for English rule and a promise of protection for normal people. But following Exeter and the sun's disastrous landing at Avonmouth, well, instead, they just turned to petty piracy. And that must have just been salt in the wound, because the Norman king had just spent the last couple years forcefully imposing punishing taxes designed to loot the kingdom and its people, And now those same people were having their possessions stolen by the sons of their previous king. Sons who should have been fighting to free them. Meanwhile, the other claimant and potential rallying point for resistance, the scion of the House of Wessex, Edgar the Atheling, well, he was hiding out in Scotland, accompanied by his family members and a motley bunch of noble companions. And whatever they were up to, it wasn't doing much to help out the common folk of England. And actually, one of Edgar's companions in exile was a nobleman named Marilla Swain. And Marilla Swain gives us a glimpse into how far the era's chaos had reached. This was a wealthy and powerful land magnate 
who had some lands in the south, but the bulk of his land wealth was in the north, which at this point was largely insulated from the worst of the Norman predations. And yet, Merle Swain fled the kingdom alongside Edgar in mid-1086, leaving his lands and the people who tended them for his benefit completely unprotected. So why? Why would a northern land magnate flee? Well, despite being mostly a northern lord, Merlis Wayne had been close with Harold Godwinson, and he held lands in Somerset, Devon, and Gloucestershire. And this makes it very possible that he was involved in some way in Exeter's rebellion. And then once that went bad, he went in search of support, or at least safe harbor, and thus, like Edgar, he found himself in Scotland. And the flight of figures like Edgar and Marilyn Swain, retreating all the way up into neighboring kingdoms, hints at the level of panic and desperation that was overtaking England. This wasn't confined to the far south, where William held the most control. The chaos and fear was everywhere. Many who had the ability to leave England did. Some, like those who fled to Flanders with Githa Godwinson, appear to have given up on England entirely, while others, like Edgar and his companions, might have been planning to return later with support. Though, if they were hoping for a Scottish intervention, well, King Malcolm III didn't appear to have been much in a hurry. He was still on his honeymoon. But... As the impromptu road trips, marriages, and courtly bargaining continues, remember, the story of this period is one of chaos and disruption. It was an absolute cluster and most of those who were charged with leading the people out of it were instead noping right the hell out of the country. And even worse, some had decided to join in on the looting. And the primary targets for all of this brutality were the people who were like you and me, the everyday English people who were just trying to live. But to their credit, they weren't out of the fight yet. Commoners and even some low-ranked nobles were taking to the woods, becoming what Orderic Vitalis calls the Silvatici, the wild men. And from their woodland retreats, they launched ambushes and laid traps. And interestingly, while Orderic, the Abingdon Chronicle, and the Chronicle of Evesham all agree that the Silvatici were out there, they don't agree on their goals. Evesham describes them as essentially bandits, while Orderic describes them as freedom fighters. And Abingdon abstains from the discussion of motivation entirely, and instead simply tells us that they attacked from the woods and that they brought some support from Scandinavia to assist them. And personally, I suspect all three sources are right. I wouldn't at all be surprised if during the chaos of the Norman invasion, we had a blend of opportunists, freedom fighters, and foreign mercs all getting involved. And once these things get going, it tends to be pretty hard to tell who is who. And on top of that, motivations can shift over time. And by the end of it, everyone would have had their own story. We actually see the same kind of thing play out today. Every time a protest is covered in the news, we get the impression that the streets are filled by a single monolithic group with a single ideology and one agreed-upon tactic. But if you've ever attended a protest, 
you know that there are at least five groups at any given moment, and many of them bitterly disagree on matters of ideology and tactics. And on top of that, you might not leave with the people you came with. People are complicated, and groups of people are even more complicated. But the two things that the sources agree on is that there were a lot of groups out there in the woods, and none of them were roasting marshmallows. And while on balance the English have been failed by their leadership, there were some exceptions among the Silvatici. One in particular was Edric the Wild, who had been wielding surprise attacks from the wild areas of England with incredible success in years prior. And now, Orderic is telling us that Edwin and Morcar had just taken to the woods themselves. Now, Edwin and Morcar are interesting rebel figures, because thus far, their political and war careers are basically just a string of catastrophic failures. These sons of Elfgar of Mercia occupied incredibly powerful roles, but they gained those positions through inheritance, not skill. And they had repeatedly shown themselves to be prone to mistakes. Mistakes that were likely made in large part due to their youth and inexperience. That bloodbath at Fulford Gate had been their doing. And I think it's entirely plausible that the disaster at Hastings was due in part to their reticence to march south and support King Harold. So right from the start, these are two odd rebel figures. But their dubious leadership skills aside, there's also the weird fact that they weren't technically opposed to William. I mean, they had been taken by William on that mandatory Norman holiday, but they appear to have used that time to form an alliance with the new Norman king. And apparently, these guys were better at politicking than they were at commanding an army, because by the end of that trip, Edwin, the eldest brother, had brokered just about as good of a deal as you could get from the bastard. Edwin had been promised the hand of one of William's daughters, he was to govern Mercia, and he would also be given authority over his younger brother, Morcar, who would be reestablished in Northumbria. So once this was all finalized, Edwin would be linked to the royal family now occupying the throne, and he would control about a third of the kingdom, making him probably the second most powerful figure in England, behind only the king himself. And all Edwin had to do in exchange was support William. It was a hell of a deal, and it highlights just how tenuous the situation was for William in his early reign. And it's an impression that's reinforced by the frantic nature of some of his early actions during that same period. In fact, even this agreement is frantic as hell. Because don't forget, Northumbria wasn't without an earl. William was promising Morcar an earldom that already had an earl. And the last time William tried handing out Northumbria by fiat, he'd granted it to Copsiga. And as you might recall, Copsiga only managed to rule for little over a month before he got beheaded by his rival, Oswulf. And then Oswulf reigned for only a few weeks before he was slain by a bandit. Remember how I said people probably went into the woods and set up ambushes for all different kinds of reasons? Well, yeah, I think Northumbria is a good example of that. But that killing spree is how Gospatric, a man from an absolutely legendary lineage, acquired the earldom. And William hadn't been all that thrilled with the change. But he accepted it, after demanding a huge sum of money. 
which Gospatrick actually paid. So not only was William promising things he didn't actually have, he was also looking to install yet another guy to head up Northumbria, knowing full well that the last time that he did it, it set off a cascading series of murders. Now, I don't think that William would have been all that bothered by the actual murder part, but the instability that this caused was undeniable. So it's hard to look at this deal with Edwin as anything less than a frantic effort to avoid having all of Mercia launch into rebellion. And so the deal was made, but it was also made before 1068 really settled in. And the defeat of Exeter and the absolutely abysmal showing by the sons of Harold Godwinson seems to have really changed things. Because now, William was beginning to feel a little more secure. In fact, he was feeling so secure that rather than hiding behind his castles and spending time in Normandy, William instead instituted a new policy designed to highlight his power and authority. Three times a year, on Easter Day, on Whitsun, and on Christmas, he was going to appear in public in full imperious regalia. He would appear in court not just in his crown, but holding the scepter, the orb, the whole motherfucking thing. This was a massive ceremony. It wasn't just about the love of fancy clothes and wizard props. William was reminding everyone with any position of authority that he was king, that he had been appointed by God himself, and that meant that his powers were both vast and divine. And suddenly we can see in the record that things had finally taken a turn in favor of William and his Norman supporters, which meant that now, rather than being concerned with having enough allies to weather the English storm, his advisors were instead concerned with how much power this English lord was about to acquire, especially considering that the general Norman perspective was that English lords really should only have power over a plow. And even then, they should probably be renting that plow from a good, proper Norman. If there was one thing the Normans really didn't like, it was an Englishman in a position of authority. This is so clear that it's almost like an embarrassment for some of the people writing about this period. For example, one author I read appears to have felt so awkward about it that he tried to claim that the titles and land grants weren't entirely one direction. And he pointed out that Regenbald and Bishop Guizo were both granted lands by William, which is true. They were both given lands and positions of power in England. But it's also true that they weren't English. They were Lotharingian. So that author's shining example of how the conquest wasn't actually a foreign occupation was highlighting other foreign occupiers. He was really telling on himself there. But to be fair... If you do some digging, you can find some English recipients of lands that were being passed out by William. It just wasn't those two. But at the same time, you really do have to do some digging because English recipients were few and far between. The basic theme of the court of William of Normandy was if you can avoid giving something to the English, avoid it. And if you can take something from that Englishman instead, even better. And that made things really complicated for William because William gave Edwin his word. They had an agreement. The North, along with his daughter's hand and a bunch of authority, was all due to be handed over. And the brothers had already been acting in good faith. 
even going so far as to take part in courtly affairs and serving as witnesses and charters. So this was a done deal. Furthermore, we're talking about William here, someone who was so concerned with being true to your word that he was telling pretty much anyone who would listen that he'd invaded England because Harold had broken a super secret promise. Now, granted, it was a promise that no one else saw, so you'll just have to take his word for it, but you can trust him. He's super interested in being honest. And it was all because of that broken promise that William had no choice but to go out and exterminate entire villages of English common folk. You know, for Jesus. So surely this man who was so focused on oaths and honesty would keep his word to Edwin. Yeah, of course not. William was fine with lying, so long as he was the guy who was doing it. And so, without any hesitation, he backed out of the deal. Edwin had been a willing and probably eager ally. He'd upheld his end of the bargain, and in doing so, he likely damaged his reputation with his fellow Englishmen. He'd also chosen to overlook the actions of the Normans, like how they were seizing lands and exterminating locals. He moved past the fact that even in this early stage, the king was imposing ruthless policies that were designed to strip the English of their wealth and positions. He'd let all of that go because he knew that in exchange for his support of all this brutality, he would become fantastically wealthy and powerful, personally. Only that had all been a lie. There were nobles who were becoming fantastically wealthy in exchange for being cool with William's behavior but they were Norman nobles. And chief among them was actually William's friend, Roger de Montgomery. But he wasn't alone. Many other Normans were being granted choice estates and titles as well. And some of those grants, it turned out, included lands and titles that Edwin had been promised. I mean, Roger was even given Shrewsbury, which should have been Edwin's. And if there's any thought that this new position was merely ceremonial, that would have been quickly put to bed when the new Norman overlord began constructing a castle there. Every one of these things stood as a concrete example of who actually ruled these lands. And it wasn't Edwin. And no one likes to be told they're going to get fabulous cash and prizes only to find out they've been played for a sucker. So, at last, Edwin found a reason to rebel. Now, imagine that you're a budding English nobleman from the Midlands who just discovered that these Normans were, it turns out, kind of bad news. And so you're looking to launch a rebellion of your own. Where are you going to go? Who's your best bet for support? You know, if you're part of the House of Mercia. Wales, right? Wales had a long history with Mercia. And while that history sometimes involved raiding, it also involved a lot of political support when the factors were right. And that was especially true when it came to the House of Mercia. Now, currently ruling over Gwyneth and Powys were the half-brothers of the assassinated King Gruffith of Wales. Their names were Prince Blethyn and Prince Rewathlin. And the Chronicle of the Princes describes Prince Blethyn as, quote, the most lovable and the most merciful of all kings. He was civil to his relatives, generous to the poor, merciful to pilgrims and orphans and widows, and a defender of the weak the mildest and most clement of kings. He did injury to none, saved when insulted. Open-handed to all, terrible in war, but in peace, beloved. End quote. Now, Edwin was also known for being terrible in war, but that's not what the Chronicle meant. 
Instead, the Chronicle was using terrible in its older form. Blevin was dangerous and inspired terror on the battlefield. He was terrible if you were on the other side. Do you remember when Edric the Wild launched his successful attack against the Norman garrison at Hereford and how he was supported by Welsh allies? Well, it was these Welsh allies. And after years of being literally terrible at war, Edwin could really use some of that more poetic kind of terrible. And so he sought the aid of the princes of Gwyneth and Powys. And then, soon after Edwin's flight, Malmesbury tells us that Edwin and his brother Morcar were back in England and that they, quote, disturbed the woods with secret robberies, end quote. Much like the Silvatici, Edwin and Morcar were using the land against their enemies. And in the case of these two Mercian brothers, they also tapped into some family connections as well. Because it turned out that Prince Blethyn began to make preparations for his own campaign. The rebellion was growing. And then, on that same year of 1068, the Worcester Chronicle tells us, quote, Then the king was informed that the men of the north were gathered together and meant to make a stand against him if he came, end quote. Oh, hell yeah. Welcome to the party, Northumbria. And the way Orderic discusses this development and the way he covers Edwin's turn from ally to rebel suggests that it was Edwin himself who had taken the helm of this rebellion. In particular, Orderic gives the impression that this growing discontentment, as well as the political murders that were taking place up in Northumbria, were a result of Edwin's turn from ally to rebel that it was his turn and his meeting with Prince Blevin that signaled a transformation from what had been previously isolated incidents into a widespread rebellion. Here's Orderic. Quote, After large numbers of the leading men of England and Wales had met together, a general outcry rose against the injustice and tyranny which the Normans and their allies had inflicted on the English. They sent envoys into every corner of Albion to incite men to recover their former liberty and bind themselves by weighty oaths against the Normans, end quote. And it does seem clear that there was a widespread outcry against Norman rule and that it was growing louder throughout 1068. Furthermore, William of Jubiege describes an organized revolt against William, though to be clear, he doesn't date it to 1068 like Orderic does. However, there is a sense in the record at this point that the English were transitioning from sporadic local revolts into something that was much more far-reaching. However, just because that change took place close in time to when Edwin met with Blethyn doesn't mean that he was responsible for it. Correlation is not causation. And honestly, it would be kind of weird if Edwin was responsible for the growing rebellion that stretched all the way up into the north. It sounds romantic, having Edwin ambush his enemies from the woods while also pulling all the bands together into one movement. It has a kind of classic Robin Hood vibe to it. A landed noble, wrongfully stripped of his inheritance, puts up a resistance against the injustices by striking out from the woods until his lonely fight ignites a kingdom-wide rebellion that threatens the reign of a king. I would totally watch that movie. The trouble, though, is that neither William of Jumiege nor the Chronicle describe Edwin as the leader of this growing rebellion. 
In fact, the Chronicle speaks of the 1068 rebellion as a purely northern affair, and it ignores Edwin and the House of Mercia entirely. And a deeper reading of Orderic shows that even he had a hard time characterizing Edwin as a major leader of the English rebellion. The resistance to the Normans, including the use of the woods as a major staging ground, was firmly established long before Edwin's involvement. And that's actually not surprising. Hit-and-run strikes, ambushes, and assassinations are effective tools of asymmetrical warfare. And when you're in a rebellion against an occupying force, asymmetrical warfare is your best bet. So all these tactics were being employed broadly in England for good reason. And they don't appear to have changed based on Edwin's involvement one way or another. So while Edwin, Morcar, and their supporters in Mercia were likely causing quite a few problems for the Normans, and while they were using what we would today call guerrilla tactics, none of that appears to have united the movement, nor directly caused the Northern Rebellion. The two events just weren't linked that closely. And to be honest, while Edwin may have been part of a general rebellion, I doubt the North would have been taking their cues from him any more than they would have taken their cues from the sons of Harold Godwinson. The North was its own thing, and they didn't appear to have been all that concerned with what these Southern dandies were up to. I mean, these folks had recently straight up murdered William's hand-picked Earl, Copsiga, and they did it back when Edwin was still picking out fonts for his wedding invitations. So if Edwin had the guts to tell the Northumbrians that he was the leader of this rebellion, my guess is the rebels would have said something to him along the lines of, that's nice, sweetie. Now, how about you lead us up a cup of tea and a few biscuits? The more likely reality here is that there was a large number of figures, some noble, most common, and they were all taking to the woods and attacking the new ruling class for their own reasons, and not because some central figure told them to. But that being said, the Northumbrians were rebelling, which begs the question, why were the Northumbrians setting ambushes and murdering bluebloods? You know, other than the fact that they were Northumbrians and that's practically a national sport up there. Well, it's probably because Northumbria was still acting like nothing much had changed in England. Because for them, nothing much had. So far, a lot of this had been par for the course for them, and the Norman conquest itself had been a southern experience. Northumbria hadn't been present at Hastings. William hadn't sent his army north. He'd not exercised the sort of genocidal wasting campaigns that he'd undertaken in the south. With the exception of the imposition of Copsiga, who was quickly assassinated without any response from the Normans, this new King William really hadn't done all that much with regard to the North. And as such, for Northumbria, I'm pretty sure they were still operating from the same general cultural understanding. Namely, that they saw themselves as different from the South. They resented that the South felt they had the right to rule over them. And they saw their submission to Southern rule as something that was negotiable. You might recall that in 1066, King Harold was forced to seek their support. And actually, for a little bit, it looked like he might not get it. And for the South, a lot had happened in those two intervening years. But if you were a Northumbrian, I wouldn't be surprised if you still saw the world the same way. Especially considering that, unlike in the South, the Northumbrian military power was still largely untouched. 
I mean, sure, they took casualties at Fulford Gate, but for the most part, they'd escaped the bulk of the casualties and wastings that the 1060s had wrought upon the rest of England, which meant that they still had the ability to put up a fight. Furthermore, Northumbria's main experience with French fighters would have been when Earl Seward soundly defeated Macbeth's forces, who had been supported by French fighters. So chances are, the northern lords weren't all that intimidated by William and his knights, and they likely assumed that that force would be easily crushed, just like Macbeth. On top of that, William's actions were likely irritating the hell out of the north. First of all, William had the balls to not be a northerner, which was a pretty big sin right there. But beyond that, he'd also been trying and failing to tell the north how to govern, and he literally imposed an earl upon them. And while that issue had been dealt with in a spectacular fashion, there was still the fact that King William seemed to think that he had authority over the North, going so far as to insist that he could sell the earldom when the Northern Lords hadn't even submitted to him yet. And that, that right there, that ultimately was probably the biggest issue. The North expected to be treated with a certain level of dignity and expected this southern king to ask for their fealty. They expected to bargain with this invader, especially since they hadn't been conquered. William had only conquered the south, and even that was debatable. But here he was, acting like he was running the place. He was even insisting that Gospatric levy severe taxes upon the public, which would all be given to the king. A king who, again, had not been accepted by the northern lords. And actually, those taxes were a big problem for Earl Gospatric, because the North had long been resistant to Southern taxes. In fact, during the reign of King Edward the Confessor, there were periods where he appears to have skipped taxing the area entirely, likely due to how difficult and dangerous levying taxes on the Northumbrians could be. And Edward's taxes had been puny compared to what William was demanding. And while it was Earl Gospatric's duty to collect those taxes, this man wasn't an idiot, nor was he ignorant of what he was facing. He hailed from one of the ancient dynasties of the area, and he was all too aware of the political culture of the North. He knew how the Northumbrians responded when they felt that a leader overstepped their authority. And as a consequence, he also knew that William had given him a poison pill. Depending on how he handled this tax issue, he would either enrage the murderous king in the south, or Gospatric would enrage his murderous neighbors in the north. Tough choice. But the newly installed earl, probably realizing how short and painful his life could be if he angered the northern lords, decided his best bet was to take his chances with the king. And besides, taxes were really putting the cart before the horse. I mean, first things first, this king needed to do as his predecessor had done. He needed to show respect and seek their support. After that, then they could talk about taxes and other duties. You know, provided, of course, that the North consented to his rule. But let's do things in the appropriate order. Soon thereafter, William learned of the situation in the North. And according to Gaimar, he sent an envoy to the Northern Lords possibly Archbishop Eldred of York, and he carried a message. Well, not so much a message and more of a demand. They must submit to William's rule. 
his absolute rule. The North, upon receiving this envoy, wasn't impressed. They'd seen puffed-up kings before, and they could care less if he was getting a bit tetchy. This was a negotiation. If the king wanted their submission and wanted to tax them, he'd need to come to some sort of understanding with the northern lords, just like his predecessors had done. And I'm guessing that it was at this point that the northern lords added an additional message, as recorded in the Worcester Chronicle. You know, to hammer home their negotiating position. Quote, Then the king was informed that the men of the north were gathered together and meant to make a stand against him if he came, end quote. When messengers arrived in William's court bringing word that the Northumbrians wouldn't be paying any taxes and weren't even sure if they wanted to be his subjects, well, I can only imagine the mood in the room. For the northern lords, they likely intended this stance to be the opening position of a long negotiation with the king. The trouble, though was that this king was William. And William didn't exactly have a great track record with keeping his cool when his authority was challenged. And his authority was definitely being challenged here. And it wasn't the only challenge he was facing. Edwin and his brother Morcar were still out there in the woods, causing all manner of problems for the Normans. And you know how it goes. When you're a hammer, everything looks like an Englishman that you want to repeatedly hit in the face. And so William mustered his army and marched north. First, he went to Warwick. And because he was a Norman, he built a castle there. Now, the guerrilla tactics that the English had adopted were very effective at sapping the strength of the Normans out in the field and as they traveled. But this tactic also had a time limit. The Norman army was built out of chivalric knights. Vicious, illiterate horse bros who could quickly move from place to place. Ideally, from castle to castle. And once a castle was in place, a lot of the advantages that the English were gaining from their woods-based approach would be neutralized. And that was likely William's goal at Warwick. Plonk down a castle and neutralize the guerrilla fighters. Specifically, neutralize Edwin, Morcar, and their supporters. And it seems to have worked, because Edwin's rebellion, which Orderic was so impressed by, was over practically before it even began. In the blink of an eye, he'd been knocked out of the fight. The castle in Warwick was then given to Henry de Beaumont, one of William's Norman allies. And from that castle, Henry was able to impose Norman rule upon the surrounding countryside. And the Doomsday Book reports that one of the manors of Coventry Abbey was laid to waste by the king's army, and it was even still listed as waste in 1086. So if Warwickshire hadn't already become familiar with the Norman style of rule, they were about to learn. The king and his followers were inflicting debilitating, permanent scars upon the kingdom, and this only accelerated when they were opposed. And the wasting of the manor at Coventry Abbey is actually really interesting. Because Warwickshire was governed by Thorkell, who was one of William's local supporters. And this English supporter was apparently so agreeable to William that he was still governing there when the Doomsday Book takes another look at it in 1086. So this was a friendly territory being ruled over by one of William's English supporters. And yet we still see a castle being installed there and being given to a Norman. And we still see a manor being wasted. And curiously, 
there is no indication in the record that William faced any kind of serious opposition in Warwickshire. And knowing what we know of it, it's highly unlikely that he would have, which leaves us with the impression that when pressed, the Normans weren't all that concerned with differentiating one Englishman from another. William needed to send a message, and perhaps one town was just as good as another. And actually, Warwick was just the opening salutation. Next, William marched on Nottingham. And once there, he met with local leaders, heard their concerns, and formed a coalition government with the five boroughs, aiming to meet their needs in the most agreeable way possible. Just kidding. He built a castle and terrorized the entire region with his army. And Nottingham Castle was placed in the care of one of William's favorites, a Norman knight named William Paverell. And this was a man who was so liked by the king that by 1086, he would own no less than 162 English manors. Pavel's property list was so long that if this was crusader kings and not real life, it would have all but guaranteed constant revolts and assassination plots. His holdings were ridiculous. But incidentally, by plonking a castle down in Nottingham and by putting William Paverell in charge of it, we have yet another link to the Robin Hood story. Because due to his new responsibilities in the area, William Paverell is credited as being the very first sheriff of Nottingham. So that's kind of fun. Anyway, so back in York, they were now getting news of the king's advance and of how he was occupying major Midland towns, building castles upon them, and then filling those castles with an occupying army. And apparently, he was also allowing his army to waste manors as they marched. And now, they were in Nottingham, which meant they were less than 80 miles from York. And it was at this point that the northern magnates realized they drastically overestimated their negotiating position. Panic overtook the halls of power in the north, and the Yorkshire aristocrats did pretty much exactly what the London aristocrats had done when faced with William in the field. They rushed to provide him with hostages, and they even gave him the keys to the city. Far from the stand that they had promised to make against William. Instead, they welcomed William and his army into the city. And once in York, William and his army, say it with me, built a castle. Actually, they built two, and one of them was placed at the future site of Clifford's Tower. That castle was placed under the care of Robert Fitzrichard. And then William went on to establish William Mallet as the Sheriff of Yorkshire, and Robert de Comenay as the Earl of Northumbria. York and all of Northumbria had fallen without a fight, and it was now occupied territory, governed and administered by Normans, with Robert de Comenay at the very top. But I wonder how Robert was feeling right about now. Because Earls of Northumbria didn't exactly last all that long at the best of times. And that murderous instinct really tended to ramp up any time someone decided to install an Earl against the wishes of the locals. So I don't know, guys. How about we check back in with Robert in about, I'd say about four months. But with that task handled, William moved on to Lincoln, where he claimed hostages and built another castle. Then he marched south into Huntington, built a castle, and to Cambridge, 
which would have been within Earl Walthiof's territory, and built a castle. This campaign was relentless and designed to crush any dissent, and it was very effective in that. By autumn, William had forced Edwin into submission. He'd established castles all throughout the Midlands and the North. He'd placed his trusted companions in positions of authority over those regions. He'd taken hostages to blackmail the locals into compliance. And he'd managed to get home before the weather really started to turn. This had been an incredible success for the Norman invaders. England was at last subdued. So it was time to celebrate. And I'm guessing that it was the success of this campaign why William felt secure enough to dismiss his mercenary knights, release some of his grumbling Norman knights who just wanted to go home to Normandy, and then take a trip back home to Normandy himself, accompanied by Matilda. Because it was done. At long last, he could stop worrying about English revolts and get back to the important things that made life worth living. You know, things like threatening and murdering his peers in France, like a civilized person. But as he sails back across the channel, I feel like we're forgetting someone. Earl Gospatrick. What happened to him? I mean, obviously, he wasn't Earl anymore. That role had been given to one of William's favorites, Robert de Comenet. But what happened to Gospatrick? Well, when William began marching north, I'm guessing that Gospatrick saw the writing on the wall and realized that there was no way that he'd managed to survive as Earl of Northumbria, because either the king would kill him for defying his will, or his neighbors would kill him for carrying out the king's will. So, as William and his army began to bear down upon York, Gospatrick and a number of the leading Northumbrian magnates left the city. Now, there were lords who remained behind, Lords who refused to abandon their lands and place all their hopes upon this king showing them some mercy. But that wasn't something that interested Gospatrick and his companions. Because Gospatrick was from the line of Uhtred the Bold. His roots were in Bambara, the ancient city that had been established for Beba, the wife of old King Ida. Gospatrick was an old-school English noble. And while he was leaving his lands and titles behind, it wasn't because he was retreating out of fear. No, he decided on a different course of action entirely. He wanted to find a better king. And he actually had someone in mind. Edgar the Atheling, who just happened to be staying in nearby Scotland under the protection of a man who was almost certainly a relative of Gospatrick's, King Malcolm Canmore. And so that's where he went. I think it's abundantly clear that Edwin wasn't the spark that started the rebellion, nor was he a central figure. Gospatrick, on the other hand, well, he very well may have been. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you're looking for a community to join, join the pleasantry over at Reddit, because it's actually fantastic. And you can find links to that as well as our other communities in the community section of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah.